Hi, and welcome to DDWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall, I'm the editor of The Toolkit, and my guests today are executive producers Lydia Tenalia and Chris Collins. They are the founders of the uh, New York City-based uh, documentary company, a powerhouse company called Zero Point Zero, uh, which is just an, has grown to be this enormous company. But what we're going to be talking about today is actually their role in executive producing and co-creating uh, what became known as Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. But really, this is about a uh, their 19-year collaboration and very close friendship with Bourdain and how this show evolved um, through three iterations over three networks. And today's podcast is sponsored by the University of California Press, uh, which has a new book, Creativity and Copyright, Legal Essentials for Screenwriters and Creative Artists, which is an indispensable reference of how to successfully navigate the entertainment industry. And if I could just editorialize for, for a moment, uh, the amount of horror stories that are coming across my desk from independent filmmakers, but also just people in this industry who are collaborating with friends who do not bother with contracts and do not legally protect themselves and, and, and the work that they're doing it is, it is so important, and if you don't do it, I, it, it inevitably will come back and bite you in the ass. Um, I know it's not why so many of you get involved in this business, but I implore you to learn and, and familiar, familiarize yourself with the legal side of this business. And this book sounds like a wonderful place to start. Uh, readers will quickly understand the laws that govern creativity, idea making, and selling, and learn how to protect themselves and their works from legal quagmires they may encounter. I would add, you will encounter. Uh, written by an unrivaled pair of experts, John L. Kiger and Howard Suber, who use real-life case studies to cover topics such as clearances, contracts, collaboration, and infringement. Visit ucpress.edu to learn more and get a copy today and follow showrunner David Pine's advice. Put it on your bookshelf next to the dictionary and thesaurus. kind of came into uh, the zeitgeist with Kitchen Confidential. And my understanding is that you had heard an idea for another book called Cook's Tour, right? And that kind of was the start start of, uh, of this, of the process of the show? Yeah, yes. We had, Tony had just um, written Kitchen Confidential and his, you know, he had made quite a splash with that book. And then there was a, uh, a second book that he wanted to write as a follow-up to that um, called The Cook's Tour, where he was hoping to travel the world and see the way the rest of the world ate and dined and et cetera. I think, honestly, he had absolutely no designs on trying to make television or be a television personality. He was really just looking for his next book project. When Chris and I walked into his restaurant in, it was uh, late, late 1999. So, um, you know, we sat with him and asked him, what's a cook's tour? And he's, well, I've never really traveled anywhere, which was true. He was in his early 40s and had spent 25 plus years working in kitchen restaurants. Um, hadn't really left New York except for once or twice as a kid. Traveled to France with his parents and then um, had gone to Japan once with uh, the owner of the restaurant where he was working because they were considering opening up a branch there. That was it. That was his travel experience. In, you know, he was 42 when we met him, 41 or 42. Um, so I think he was really just looking for an excuse uh, to write another book and use this as the, the conceit through which he could potentially travel. One of the fascinating things here is I, I should give this a background. You know, one of the reasons I so wanted to do this podcast is two years ago, there's a, an event here in New York that's put on by, by the PGA called Produced By. And Lydia and Anthony did, a, did an hour-long talk about the origins of the show. And I actually just re-listened to my recording of that this morning. And it was funny because it was like one of the common, in the process of how this show, which is so original and, and it evolved. And one of the things that, that Tony kept saying throughout the whole talk was, it's very powerful to not be the to be the person that doesn't give a fuck if they're on TV or not. And that idea that in the TV there's this 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 concept of uh, some of the safe 
some of the safe ways that people go about things. And he really seemed to, it seemed to be part of this, which is that like, I want, I don't have to be on TV. I don't have to do this. And, and, and that idea of, I don't want to, and I, I guess at the time he, I, I didn't know this, but he'd been railing on the Food Network shows and the hosts and things like that. So it wasn't like he doesn't even see how he fits in this world of cooking shows because he, he had taken digs at them. And, and, so I'm wondering if that, if, if that, I mean, I want to talk about how eventually the show evolved, but that seems to be part of not only this idea that maybe he hadn't traveled before, and he's, which is a different point of view for this, but also this idea that he wasn't necessarily interested in in, in riding these like cooking wave shows that were out there. Yeah, I, I think that's that was very clear from the get-go when we met him. I mean, it was, um, to a certain degree, uh, I don't even think that he was locked into making a television show when we went and made what was a cook's tour, at least in the beginning. I think Tony saw it as an opportunity to double dip. He was getting paid not that much money to go make this show. At the same time, his designs were always on writing. The, the thought of being the guy in front of the camera yammering away was not his was not his thing so um, what was clear from our initial foray out the door was he had no interest in what we were going out to do he was going to write the articles that he wanted to write and we just if we happened to catch him on camera oh all right we've succeeded at something so that was really I think how his mind was working at that point um, and that was a that was a six-week trip five six-week trip that we went with him in um, latter part of 2000 to Asia. And it was really, it took, uh, I, I would say it probably took like a week or so. I mean, you know, we've, we had a initial, um, our first shoot was in Tokyo. And it was one of those, and everybody's had these, where there's that moment of realization that this is a complete disaster. This is going nowhere. It's going nowhere very, very fast on somebody else's dime that believed that we could go out and do this. And I think it was a, a it took how many days? Three, four days? Five days? When, yeah. when did he lock in finally and realize, yeah, oh, was, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with making a television show now? Yeah. No, I mean, it was from... To get back to your question, though, it's your comment, I think what was really fascinating was that as Chris just said, Tony wrote Kitchen Confidential thinking in the back of his mind, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life inside of a kitchen slinging steaks and french fries. So when he wrote Kitchen Confidential, it was kind of a no-holds-bar, I-don't-give-a-fuck, you know, exegesis on what it means to work in restaurant kitchens behind the scenes. And so he wasn't really guarding himself at all and the reaction to that particular book was so powerful um it was the beginning i think of tony deeply finding his writerly voice which was very much predicated on i'm just going to tell it like it is and so when we got to the television series that ethos just sort of translated its way over However, it took him a moment to figure out how to use the medium of a television series to deeply um, uh, um, advance his writerly message. Do, do you know what I'm I saying? Do. It's I do. Like, so what Chris was saying. It's not is a one to one. It's not a one to one, and so we got out in the, the very first shoot that we went on. Chris and I. Mm -hmm produced it and shot it. It was in Japan, very stilted, you know, full of um, etiquette type of culture. Tony was completely awkward. He did not understand the relationship with the camera. He didn't understand what we were doing, why we were there, what was expected of him. He said he was terrible on camera. He was terrible. It was, it was terrible, actually. The first shoot that we went on was terrible. It, Chris and I went back to the hotel. We're like, this is not going well. We've now sold the series to the Food Network. This is a disaster. And he really didn't quite understand what the um, dynamic was. And so we were trying to prompt him, you know, to, to really um, 
you know, deliver to an audience. And he, all he wanted to do was go in, have his experience, and be able to go back to his hotel, write about it, mm. and publish another book. Let and these two film me while I write my book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much what happened. But, but when we moved from Japan to the next location, which was Vietnam, and I think we talked about this during the PGA shoot, he suddenly had an enormously different uh, reaction because he was he was a deep reader of history he loved vietnam history when we got off in that airport which so many of us had seen in books and photos of the vietnam war he had a visceral reaction to that um and we always say that is really where the show began to come alive because i think he suddenly experienced the camera as an as 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 an audience you know and he was using the camera and the, the um, proximity of the camera what the camera could do what the camera could see um suddenly i think he started to it started to click and it, it you know it was really in vietnam where the the rhythm of the show started to take root in that sense, and because I think people that it, it, this is part that obviously has been expanded upon and, and is very much in this this recent season is, is 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 that seeing some of these places through cultural references through through the films right through mm-hmm. um, while he might not have been to Vietnam he had seen Apocalypse Now and suddenly the fans going and it's Saigon and it's it, it's those type of things and being able to think about it in those in those kind of filmmaking cultural references right is that is that a big part. Oh, I, you know, the, the, one of the great things about Tony is he had seen more films than you will ever see, than I will ever see. It was sort of staggering for a guy who was, you know, was working a lot, mm-hmm. um, that he found the time um, to sort of consume at a level that was, it was, I was envious of. Um, and at some point he learned to sort of draw on that, which he'd seen, and as Lydia had mentioned, what he had read because he was a voracious reader as well and sort of bring it to whatever this thing that we were doing was becoming um, and to incorporate story narrative style into the you know the little run and gun show that we were doing back in 2000 that evolved over 18 years how many were how many of you were there on these in this first season is it is it the Cook's tour was me, Chris, and I. Uh-huh. Um, we went out into the field with him. We shot it and we produced it. Um, at the time, you know, I was I. I also came from a background of editing, so there was one or two episodes that we we edited together. The Food Network had ordered twenty three episodes, so we had to expand our crew. Um, but it was a very very tight team of people. So the first season. Chris and I shot probably uh, 50 to 75% of that show. And then as the show gathered steam, second season, we had to hire more people. To, but there, the field crew was always very small. So it was a director, producer, shooter in the early days. Um, and then, you know. A, a, it really hasn't gotten any bigger. It, it never it, got it much bigger, it to be didn't. honest with you. The, the, we, we ended up lugging more equipment around as the camera work got more sophisticated and the scene work got more sophisticated. But the crew itself has always been very small, like five people. So, what about that? If, 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 if the way that you're kind of seeing your way into a new area is, is through film references and you are talking about a, a run and gun. TV crew. I mean, I think in that first season there was a black and white Rome episode. Uh, there's this Vietnam. What about? I mean, that has to be a wonderful creative challenge, but also something that's a little bit like, how are we gonna, you know, the, these these things that he's referencing? You know, one sees pictures of, of Coppola with, you know, an army of people, and so it's you know, it, you're doing a, a cooking show, and it's 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 two or three people. I mean, there has to be like this. Not only okay, that's a great idea, but how are we going to be able to execute something like? like this i mean I, I know that's something that probably became a much more normal many seasons down the road but in the beginning i, I have to imagine that was like it was both creatively challenging but also challenging it was it was more so it was freeing mm. 
Um, I think when, particularly when we were those early, um, those early years in a cook's tour, um, and that was sort of at a moment when the when the food food network was beginning to ascend, and we were we were left to our own devices, which was the greatest and the scariest thing at the same time. Um, you know, I, I think our our ambitions were always really big. We we learned to you know work within the margins that we had to work with. And, you know, looking back on it now, if you go back to a cook's tour, I mean, I, I, some of, there, there was, listen, it, it might look a little low rent today if you're laying it up against what Parts Unknown ended up looking like and feeling like. But there was um, an incredible amount of creativity and heart and soul that went into that process. I mean, you know, we, we did a, uh, we spent some time in the Outback in Australia, and we did our homage to uh, Mad Max. That was, you know, I think one of our our greatest accomplishments. And remember, this was at a time when we were we were shooting on PD one hundreds. So, if anybody remembers that little, that little camera, those um, little three cheap three chip ones. Yeah, yeah it, but it was. The, By the way, I love the fact that I'm looking down. You you have this like uh, you have this like history of your cameras oh, yeah. here on the shelf here. <laughs> yeah, those are all the cameras that have been used. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it was a um, it, you you take what you have you, the, the and live within the margins of what you have and create what you can create and I think there was a great deal of autonomy that we were I I don't know if it was bestowed on us or nobody was paying attention and and from from there we went. Yeah, I would just add to that we were never gonna have you know CGI cast of a thousands in the background I think it was really more an exercise of how do we create you know the most um, interesting homage so if, if we were taking our uh, inspiration from a scene from Mad Max it's you know how do you given the parameters we have to work with how do you create the most interesting homage given that you have you know two two people with PD-100s and you have a pickup truck and you're out in the outback, you know, had it, and we ended up getting a dog as a prop and various other things. It's, you know, we sat down, I remember the night before, me, Chris, Tony, and we actually storyboarded out this one scene that was gonna be our homage to this particular film and so you know, it, it happened at, at those times on a small scale, but um, the creative impulse was there and, and the spark was there. And, it, um, and I think we were, we were all film nerd geeks and we were just really enjoying having the freedom of how do you execute this? And this is a food show, who cares? You know, we're out in the outback, it's the desert. This looks like Mad Max. Let's figure this out. And so we would do that all the time in that show. And it, I think it gave us all tremendous joy. I think it made Tony certainly giddy when we were able to pull things off like that. As the show progressed over the years from Cook's Tour to No Reservations to Parts Unknown, those homages became more sophisticated. Um, you know, we had incredible DPs on board and again I would say they were homages we were never going to have you know the fight sequence from a Tarantino film but we could create a moment in the episode that felt like it was inspired by or an homage to something that you know Tony really loved so you, me you mentioned the black and white Rome episode mm. for example yeah I mean, we had to fight tooth and nail to allow that episode to be in black and white. But it was an homage to Fellini and Dolce Vita and, you know, and there was a fountain scene we created. And so I, I you know, it, it was like, it was truly the, the heart of that series was a bunch of, like-minded film geeks who wanted to figure out a way to make something visually different and exciting within the construct, the parameters that we were given to work in. 
it seems as if if we, if we think about the the, the 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 bowl of soup which is in all of these it, it, it slowly the show becomes more and more about what's happening around around it and the food becomes and, and it seems as if and that seems to be the evolution of I don't know, 17 18 years that this was more and more so and one thing that uh, comes up a lot that he spoke a lot about um, in terms of that evolution was was the Beirut episode as being like a, as being a big turning point. I mean, summer, I guess the show was shot. This is when Hezbollah starts bombing. Him and the crew are essentially watching watching the city that they've just enjoyed for a few days and filmed being set back decades. And um, he, the way he had told the story was that he had come back to New York. Eventually, I guess getting him out was no 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 picnic. And uh, he came back and he said, I'm not making a show about that. I'm not... That's that feels wrong, but it seems as if somehow in that conversation of what to do with that episode, he, he, a big turning point in the show. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Um, yeah, I, I think it was a turning point. It was a, and it's true to say that he. I remember that day when when he and the crew got off the plane. I think they got flown back and they landed at Teterboro. Got off the plane, there were hugs, there were tears. There were kisses, and then he, you know, said to Lydia and I, "Yeah, we're not making a Beirut show." Uh, that was that was about thirty seconds before the head of the network said, "Hey, can you get a rough cut done in two weeks?" And it became um, sort of a an exercise in convincing Tony that we we had something, and you know, when in fact we we did. I mean, they they shot for I believe a day and a half, um, and then before we, everything b- broke. B- yeah, out. before everything broke loose, and then they did some they did some additional shooting in the hotel, moving from place to place. Um, but he was, you know, he was convinced. You, you know, Tony's thing is, I, I'm not a journalist. I don't want to go down this path. It's it's not why I'm here. It's not what I do. And um, I think it was uh, probably within you know 48 hours of getting back um, in New York. Um, we didn't have that many tapes to go through frankly, and look at whatever material they had shot. And um, I remember Lydia and I just had a conversation with Tony and said, listen, we respect the way you're feeling. Absolutely. Um, Let's just sit down. Let's just talk. Let's let's just do a quick scratch interview. Um, You guys of him. Of him. Yeah. Right. And I think it was a little bit of maybe a little bit of manipulation on our part knowing full well that we did need to deliver something, but if we could get him to sit down and we just set up in one of the offices in one, actually one of the edit suites, um, set up a camera and did a, uh, a quick, a quick interview. You know, I think the whole time he was saying, we're not using this, right? And we're like, we're definitely not using this. Um, and, uh, as I said, we maybe shot for a couple hours and that was really the, uh, the bed that we laid the images on top of. I mean, it was that interview and it, it um, you know, what he said when you watch that episode. I mean, that's fresh, fresh off, you know, getting off a plane, coming back from Beirut pretty much. And, and the emotions were very real. Um, and they really sort of informed uh, the, the scenes that they got and informed what Tony saw over those days that they were still, that they were stuck in Beirut. Um, and it certainly got a response. I mean, it did change the direction of the series, not that we were going to now pursue places that were in hot zones and go chasing conflagrations. That that wasn't the point of the series. Um, but what I think it did do is open his eyes up, 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 to a, up to storytelling that was a little bit different. I mean, what he had said at the event was, I'm no longer going to... It, I'm no longer going to avoid the elephant in the room when I'm in these places and what's going on around here and these conversations that I'm having with people. And it also seems as if he does go to, I I guess maybe they went to so many places for the show, but certainly you're also not avoiding places in in the trajectory of the show where there there aren't conflicts and problems and issues and, 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 and then talking about the way that everyday people live whatever the issues are, they're going to, they're going to come up. And it was almost this embracing of it in a, in a unique way, because he keeps going back to that idea. I'm not a journalist, but he so has such a distinct point of view and has such a sense of such a connection with these people that it, it's a, it's a, I, one of the things that's amazing to me about this is, is that 
the, the voice of this show becomes such that it's hard to even place where that is. Because he's like, I'm not a journalist, but I'm going to talk to these people. I'm going to find out what's going on. And he, and, and, and the, in the summations and the way he does view it, it does become a very much a point of view show of, of, of his tour of a world. And, and, and slowly the food becomes more and more yep. a backdrop, right? Yes, I'm, that is exactly. And I, I do think Beirut was a turning point there for him because <clears throat> we never drop the conceit as uh, of the, the table being the entry point to the conversation. But I think at that point, Beirut, and that ended up going on to, to get nominated for a new, uh, News and Doc Emmy. So it was the very first time we were nominated for something. And I think Tony really understood deeply the power of that kind of storytelling. Yes, we went there. Yes, we went to go try the food of Beirut. Yes, we went to go talk to the people who own the restaurants and through the parties and this and that, what have you. But then when that happened, I think he made a connection. This is the way in, food is the way in, the table is the way in, but that isn't really the story. The story is who are the people on the ground? What are their lives? What do they hope for? What do they dream about? You know, What are the things that they're up against? Um, what is the culture surrounding whatever this table is? And I think the show shifted at that point, and he he embraced that uh, more deeply because I think he was reticent. I, I think he, uh, up until the very end, I think he was saying constantly, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a journalist, but he was able to do something maybe a journalist isn't always able to do, which is to go in not trying to keep an objective reporting mm -hmm. stance, not doing reportage, but going in from like a deeply personal place and being open to that kind of personal exchange. And I, so it's, it becomes less objective reporting of a place and more experiential first person, you know, um, storytelling. Where in this evolution of the show does CNN come in? I mean, I think you've been there for, was this the seventh year, seventh of the? Yeah, it would have been seventh That sounds right. Year. <laughs> but the show is already going in this direction, and I guess it's a chicken and egg thing. It's like CNN probably sees where it's going and, and sees it as being part of it. But I have to imagine that move also um, also helps it go in that direction, and it's almost, that's, one imagines they're coming calling because of the fact that it's moving in this in, in this direction is becoming this wonderful look yep. at these places that we don't we don't get to see yeah we were on you know we did food food network cooks tour for two years and then i think as chris said they were food food network is really trying to shape its mandate around um a certain kind of programming so it didn't quite fit into that anymore then we moved on to travel channel we did seven eight years of no reservations. And we were under the um, great stewardship of a British uh, general manager over there named Pat Young, who's since gone back to England. But for six years there, he was the champion of the show. So I, I think he in fact, he was the one who pushed really hard to get that Beirut episode done in two weeks. And we're like, you're crazy, and we, we don't have enough footage. And he's like, look, this has suddenly become extremely topical, and you were there. We have an opportunity to tell a story from a different point of view. So he pushed us hard to do it and, and continued to champion the show. When he left, um, and again, no dismissiveness in terms of travel channel but again their mandate shifted you were always a little bit of a we were always a, a bit of a black of, sheep yeah. amongst both of those networks and i think the show regardless of being a black sheep continued to push up against the edges of a food culture travel show it started to morph into something else and it wanted to go in that direction and we were oftentimes 
um, you know, d directed to not necessarily go in that direction. Oh, our audience doesn't want to see shows from the Congo or from Afghanistan or et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the show kept wanting to push hard in that direction. And so I think when Travel Channel had a management change, um, at that point, we honestly thought, as did Tony, this show is going to run its course here, and we can all pat each other on the back and say, job well done. But we all saw the writing on the wall that maybe this was not something Travel Channel wanted to continue with. Um, and it was really right at that moment that CNN came along. So I think you were their first original. They, they have, obviously have their original series, mm -hmm. original films now. I think you were the first. We were the first, yeah. We were the first. It's always fun because when you're the first one, they're trying to define, they're trying to do something different. Yeah. They, they, the first they were one. ready to embrace the black sheep in a very big way. <laughs> yeah. And we're very, they very, did. very thankful for that. I mean, that's amazing timing, right? Because usually yeah. something like this is something where it's like, you're so lucky to have gotten to do it for so long and you're waiting for the clock. When you're trying to do something different, right? You're always waiting for the clock to run out. And, 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 and maybe we're ready to, like you said, it's, and, and then it'll, here comes this big dog looking to try to do something different. And it be, I mean, the show, it's just very fortuitous because what those last seven seasons have been wonderful and, and to be able to grow it, but it, it really is not something that I think was natural, right? Cause it normally things like this that are different kind of, well, I mean, there's only a handful of, you know, unscripted series that have had that kind of longevity. It's like, you know, Amazing Race. And, you know, this show ran for 18 years, yeah. you know, three different iterations of it, but it kept going. I think we probably had a moment of doubt when CNN came along and said, you know, can you guys uh, iterate the show again for CNN? And I think we all thought, you know, do we have the ability to recreate this show? Do we have to do the, do we have the ability to make it fresh again? And I think what what we found with CNN as as a as a great partner with this series is that they pushed back and said, "You guys make a fantastic series. We want you to keep making the fantastic series. Push the series where it needs to go. We are behind you 100%." And having that kind of support, I think everybody here felt just a resurgence of energy of, okay, we now have the full support of the network. They want us to push in the direction of going to challenging places. Mm -hmm. Let's let's Is embrace that, it. You're you're openly going to more challenging places in the Yeah, I, 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 I it was it, look uh, it was it, it wasn't it wasn't no I just I don't want to make it sound like it was a, an explicit sort of mandate like you need to now go to these kind of places because that was not the case I think I think that the, what they maybe recognized whether it was a, a difficult place or not was a storytelling that was evolving mm -hmm. and I think if you go back and you you look at those last you know the last run of no reservations as we're playing out what we're really playing out what we've got left at Travel Channel, what you see is the beginning of what Parts Unknown was to become. And to Lydia's point, what it was, and it wasn't like there was a, a ton of money being thrown at us. There wasn't necessarily even a ton of um, sort of access to places we wanted to go. We, it, what, it, what it really was and what was, what was so crucial was that we were given the confidence to go, go forward mm. and keep making something. It, and it really, I'm, it, it's as simple as that. It's the difference between tiptoeing and seeing if we can get away with it than like, yeah, yeah this is what we're now doing. This is now what we're doing. Yeah. And it was, it was that sort of guidance in, in the sense of like just the, the, again, the greatest thing we can have as creators is some freedom. Mm. One thing, one thing as so, this is something that I, I, I I came too late. I, I caught it later iterations. And one of the things that instantly stood out to me is, you know, a lot of TV, when you have to make a lot of TV, and, and for good reason, things become cookie cutter. There becomes, there becomes a formula. And between the lack of voiceover, between the editing, between, like, 
if there is a story arc, I can't, you know, the story arc is, is, is Tony's point of view, you know, it's like in, in what he's experiencing through this country. These are things that one finds more in like kind of an independent film world and, 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 and to, this is kind of a two part question. One is that element of being able to find something that a way to do that on TV is fascinating to me. But then there's also another part, which is that you still had to produce so much TV, which is, you know, at a certain point that, that structure helps, helps the production line get going. And so I have to imagine, I have to imagine that sometimes means that you have episodes that you're in a little bit of trouble with. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to do this? But I mean, I'm just fascinated by that because it's like to be able to do as much television as you did on the scale that you did, um, I it, it, I don't think I can think of anything else that's quite like that. And I, you know, my wife's got this unscripted stuff on all the time, and it's like I could walk in and out of the room. I know exactly. Okay, I, you know exactly where I am, where what's going on. And like this one, I gotta sit there, and I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go on this trip with him. Yeah, that was the strength. That's why that show ran for so long, is because every single episode was its own little independent feature. And I think you know Tony wanted. He's, he absolutely, I think, pushed everyone here, sometimes to, to an extreme, <laughs> to the breaking point, to make sure that this episode feels like we're saying something different than the episode last. So each episode, you know, felt like its own independent little dock. Um, it, it was hard. It was hard to keep up with that. That rhythm to, to keep up with that pressure of um it was it was a it was an interesting and difficult challenge i think you still have time demands right you still have to hit like a certain time delivery right you have to yes i mean we were working within the constructs of a production schedule so but you know having done it for so many years there was a a, a rhythm to that production schedule that everyone knew it was the same group of people making it um, we had several crews, and they kept checkerboarding over the years. Um, so everyone understood the, the the rhythm of it, how much pre-production we needed in order to execute that Juan Car Wai homage in Hong Kong. I mean, there was a there there was a rhythm to it, but I think that the really difficult part was that, you know, Tony was putting a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, on all of us to make sure that the show was evolving and that it felt different week to week. And, um, you know, people people really felt that challenge. They really felt that pressure. I, I, would, I would also add that, I mean, as, as challenging as Tony was and as, as hard as, as he pushed over all those years, uh, there was uh, a reciprocal in the crew that cared deeply about the story. And they pushed back as hard on him. Because you basically had what, like four or five directors, four or five cinematographers that are kind of your, your yes, and, and uh, yeah. maybe the same amount of producers that you're checkerboarding. And yeah. editor, we we probably had you know five, six, seven editors um, that you know worked throughout the seasons. Um, there was there was ownership across the board. This wasn't just Tony's show. This was. This was a group. This was a group effort, and everybody had their own opinions, and had their own feelings, and had their own egos, and it was all sort of. It was make no mistake. It was you know Tony was the catalyzing force, but it was a a group of people that were getting to work out some of their own fantasies at the same time, and that was the beauty of it. And and, and frankly, we we had a network, you know, and I, I'll say across the board. I mean be it Food Network or be it Travel Channel and, and then CNN where there, there were some you know, like-minded people there that were willing to allow us to go do the things that we did. You know? Maybe we could use um, one of the episodes of, from the, this last season as, as an example, but I'm very curious because a, we talk about pre-production and planning these things, and so part of this is like, a rough idea of what the story is going to be or what you're going to do. But the other thing is, is that my understanding is you're not going over there and spending a lot of time. There's not a lot of pre-production in necessarily in country. Right. So I, I'm wondering in, in, if it's easiest, maybe it'd be great to talk about one from this season, but I'm just curious about like that process because 
once again, the show does have a sense of exploration, but that exploration has to be done within certain confines, certain, you know, what the restaurants are, who the people are going to be, what's the, what are the issues in the story? And I'm sure some of that's research and reading and stuff, but I'm, I'm curious how an episode comes, comes together before the producer, director, and Tony hop on a plane. Yeah, I mean, depending on what the location is, if it's someplace like, um, you know, Afghanistan that took, I don't know how many months of uh, pre-production to even just get the access to it. I'm using that particular location because that required an enormous amount of pre-production, logistical uh, planning. But the typical um, creative process was that, you know, the team was on board, the director and the producer, along with the showrunner. You know, we had a list of locations that Tony wanted to explore, and we were handed those at some point towards the tail end of the prior season. Um, that was typically a mix of locations that were either based on a film that he was particularly interested in exploring the visuals of or a story that he had read or, frankly, I'm exhausted and I need my Caribbean vacation locations because there were some of those as well. And so we were handed that. And when you start to parse through that list, you know, you you begin to dissect it specifically from the point of view of of what you just mentioned. Well, how how hard is it going to be for us to get into the Congo or how hard is it going to be to go do that episode in Kenya. Um, and and once we, we begin to, to do that, we get down to the nitty-gritty of um, building the treatment. So those shows were, we went into the field with a treatment. So all of the locations that we wanted to see or the characters we wanted to interact with, those were pre-produced and researched out and calls were made ahead of time using a fixer on the ground. At this point, having done this show for 18 years, we have fixers all over the world. And there's good fixers and there's bad fixers. There's good fixers and the bad fixers, and a show can live or die by the fixer. And you can tell which show lives and died by the fixer. Because you're, you know, because we don't have... You must get better at it, though. You must get better at it in terms of, like, in the same way that I'm sure you're good at hiring a camera person or an editor, my guess is you 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 know how we've to stumbled. find. We've stumbled. We've yeah, there's been there's been there's been you know fixers who have shat the bed for sure, and we certainly were on the receiving end of you know Tony's wrath in those instances. But the fixer is your eyes and ears on the ground, so they become this critical piece of the equation. But the team here is driving you know, what we hope to see, what we hope to get, the kind of characters we want to find. The fixer, if they're really good, is collaborative in that process. So the team leaves the, you know, the production office with a treatment in mind. And hopefully that treatment, when it's it's done well, has a, a narrative attached to it or a narrative we're hoping to achieve attached to it. But there's no script. There was never a script. It was never written out. Tony's narration was not written out ahead of time. Um, We had an idea from him of what he hoped to get. And then the team would find scenes and locations that could be used to um, tie the idea together. But it was extremely improvisational, the entire endeavor. I mean, it was improv. Um, Tony got better and better and better and better at it over the years. The crew got better and better at it. Um, There were times where you would go and something would fall apart and you'd have to pivot quickly on the ground to, you know, to find something else or generate something else. Or serendipitously, things would happen Mm -hmm. and you would pivot. pivot. So there was a lot of... um, you know, improv attached to the series. And then it really came together during the post-production process. And again, as Chris said, a series of editors that we've been working with for so many years, you know, really understood when this footage came in, um, 
how to begin to structure it into a narrative. And the way that would work was they would begin to rough cut things out, put them into scenes, and um, try to formulate those scenes into a loose act. And then that would be sent to Tony. And he, at that point, was somewhere else in the world, so he would be sent a digital link of acts as they were coming together. And then he would begin to write to that act. Or there were times where he'd, you know, rip the whole thing apart and say, that's not what I wanted at all, and then we'd have to start from the drawing board. Those, whole, you know, those were kind of fewer and far between as we made our way through the years. But... That was the general rhythm of it. Then his writing would be brought back, and that would inform the editing. The editing would inform the writing. The writing would inform the editing. And so it would work hand-in-hand hand like that, you know, from rough cut to fine cut. And it was shaped um, in post-production. So it, it went from, you know, treatment to improvisational scene work in the field to a post-production process that was working hand in hand with the writing until it kind of jockeyed into a position, you know, where everyone was happy with it. But it was a, it was a, it was like a documentary. Each episode was its own documentary. And how many days would they, on average, have in the in the it, in, in country? It, it would, you know, I, I was just thinking about because you, you know, the pre-production we would probably get anywhere to four to six weeks of pre-pro in the early days it was more like two to four then it probably went four to six um early days there was no scouting your your scout was the first day of the shoot and you went from there um the i think you know towards the the latter part of the of parts unknown um we were doing anywhere between i'd say eight and twelve days in the field depending on where we're going that that would probably include travel too mm -hmm. so there was a limited time you know time frame that we had to work within um we were afforded the ability to tack on uh b-roll days on either side of that to pick up stuff but you know our time our you know tony's time was on average probably eight days of shooting that sound right yeah I think early on in his early 40s, he was able to consume probably like three to four meals a day. Yeah. <laughs> As he got older, he said, I cannot do more than, you know, one big meal plus something else small. So we had to schedule around yeah, there's, that. There's also a little bit of an element that seems as if the show also just involved in terms of um, needing less of yeah. him and, and more about the feel and the, you're talking Very B-roll days. And, yep. he, and he was the first guy. I mean, he really was, you know, turn the camera away from me and look what's around us. Yeah. I mean, that was really... Uh, his, his early days, not early days, but he used to say, uh, less, uh, less me, more B. That's because he was also getting very lazy. I'd like to say that as well. <laughs> um, along, the, along the way, um, this company, we're at, we're at ZPC right now, it, is, it, it, it has also grown in tremendously. It feels as if this show has also become a model of the fact that maybe you don't have to necessarily follow some some of these conventions that are out there. That there's that that especially in this time, if you do something interesting, you'll find an audience. This is I mean I also maybe you're just really awesome producers and found lots of great stuff. But I mean this place is enormous. This company is enormous. You're doing lots of good things. And I have to imagine there's something here about the principle of how this collaboration with Tony came out that's kind of maybe baked into a lot of the stuff that you're doing in, in this world of TV? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I do think that we've first and foremost been able to attract an enormously um, creative group of people because they recognized early on that um, Chris and I deeply held as um, as paramount the creative process. So the types of shows we were making, Bourdain was really the biggest and best example of it, were not cookie cutter format shows. We probably just physically incapable of making those types of shows. 
We tried. I, we did we try. Tried. I was actually, <laughs> I was going through our archive of demos over the last 10 years the other day, and I'm like, oof, oh. It's it might have like, been an easier road if we like, succeeded at some of those, <laughs> the actually. Archive, hall I of wish shame. we had. It was a hall of shame, but, but it, 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 you know, I think we attracted really great people here um, because they recognized that the, the creative process and um, you know doing things differently was something that we really celebrated oftentimes I would say at our own expense <laughs> because those things can be very expensive however um, I think our company has grown and our the types of shows that we have done and continue to do has grown and lots of interesting opportunities have come our way because we really, we, we, we stayed the course. We, I think we stayed the course uh, in terms of what we found interesting, um, what we found exciting, what we found um, creatively uh, challenging. And we stayed that course despite many years where staying that course was financially very, very challenging. But I think we really stayed that course because, um, you know, we've always operated from the place of if you have a bullhorn to talk to the world, you better be saying something substantive. You know, our company motto is to create content that connects humanity. And it's something that we actually really take to heart. So we try to look at shows and ideas and filter them through that, um, through that mission statement. So I think, you know, it was a combination of that show became an enormously strong calling card for us, but it is also because, you know, we deeply tried to stay the course of creating really substantive content, and hopefully, you know, our body of work reflects that. Well, it does, and congratulations. This is, this is a wonderful show. I... I, I I know it didn't. I, I know it's bittersweet in a lot of in a lot of ways. Uh, but I, I I appreciate you spending the time talking about this show. Um, it's really it's really wonderful, and and uh, I hope uh, the Emmy voters remember it in its in its last season this year because I mean there really is from a technical standpoint a lot of things here. You know this is the this is I think you're my hundredth guest. This is the first time I've done unscripted TV, and it's because there's a lot of craft here, and there's a lot of things here that. Uh, it, it makes me excited that that you can do these type of things on a on a CNN show. So thanks. I think it's worth noting that we got nominated this year for three different series for best series. So n not just the Bourdain series, but the David Letterman, my next guest needs mm -hmm. no, no no introduction, and then somebody feed Phil. He's nominated for unstructured reality. So we have three series. We were so. I don't know, it was just this a great achievement, I think, mm. for the company to be in the same year nominated for three different series. It's very cool. Congratulations on that. Thanks. And thank you. Thank you for your time.